Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore. My guest today is Dr. Christina Malley. I'm so happy to have Christina here because she is actually one of my most favorite people. We went to graduate school together and have remained friends. Christina is a wellness consultant who encourages and empowers people to identify and reach their future goals, especially those goals related to overall health and wellness. Her specialties include sleep problems, stress management, intuitive eating, support through life transitions, nutrition, hormones, fertility, pre-pregnancy prep, and postpartum adjustments. She has a lot of specialties. (laughs) She also has extensive research in the realm of our topic today, which is vicarious trauma. So Christina, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. I'm so glad to be here. It's so good to be with you. Same. So as we get started, do you want to just help us understand what vicarious trauma is? How do you define it? Yeah. Okay. So I feel like there's a lot of words that are kind of batted around when we're talking about the stress that you may experience like in the counseling room. And I'm going to refer, because I know it's not just with counselors, there's things that are happening with lay people too. So I'll kind of touch on those, but I'm kind of focusing on our audience, right? Like a lot of us are helping professionals. So there's words, vicarious trauma, there's secondary traumatic stress, there's burnout and compassion fatigue. So you probably have like heard these things like thrown around or seen people write about them or whatever, but they're actually kind of a little bit different. So I kind of want to like break that down so we can fully understand it. Okay. So first is like burnout, which is essentially it's a prolonged exposure to hearing trauma day after day, year after year. So it's the details of it that just kind of burn you out. Then we have secondary traumatic stress, which is behaviors and emotions from knowing a traumatic event and the stress from helping your client with those. And then vicarious trauma is actually the permanent transformation of the inner experience of the practitioner. So they're all a little nuanced and all a little different, but they're all kind of talking about the same thing, the stress that comes from listening to a trauma narrative or trauma details. So they're all on a spectrum, but burnout is the lowest end and vicarious trauma is the highest end, right? Yeah, I guess that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, it's the permanent change and the transformation for the practitioner. Okay. It's actually kind of a more recent thing too that they've studied with it. And by recent, I mean the last like 20 years or so that they've started studying. So Perlman and McMinn are like some of the main people that I reference when I am looking at it because they're the first ones that studied it. So mm-hmm. they're the ones that created this exact definition because the other ones didn't seem to fit into what this inner change was actually happening for practitioners. Mm. So. Do you know who they studied when they studied it? I mean, they studied a lot of different people. They studied a lot of frontline workers working with refugees that are coming over. They studied therapists that were working with that and they studied different people with medical issues. So it seems to be a spectrum. Okay. So a lot of helping on, on the ground, helping professions is where the research. I like frontline workers. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm thinking of COVID and how I'm sure there's plenty of frontline workers that probably have vicarious trauma at this point from the last couple of years. Okay. So what are some of the signs and symptoms? Like maybe how do we differentiate from burnout to compassion fatigue to actually vicarious trauma? 
Yeah. So it's like a step deeper. So some of the signs are difficulty talking about their feelings when they're thinking about a client. So difficulty like coming up with like articulating their experience, like anger and irritation, sleep problems. So even like dreaming about your client's trauma experience and that popping into Mm -hmm. your dreams or kind of ruminating on that, a startle response and kind of being hyper-vigilant. And just if we're in touch with our bodies, it's just being more on edge, maybe even sitting on the edge of your seat when you're in the room with a client. So kind of those signs that we can look for in session. Overall, just this difficulty, maybe like falling asleep because you're thinking about things or waking up, like I just said, from a dream or just waking up throughout the night and just a general feeling of like hopelessness. Like this mm. is happening to everybody in the world, kind of like catastrophizing and saying, this is happening to everybody. And just, you know, where's the hope in this? Some of like the signs and symptoms they've studied, but if I'm thinking about it, like if you came to me and we're like consulting about it, I'm going to, I'm going to start noticing, like, are you resistant to like see certain clients that have a more difficulty or, or have like a more challenging trauma history or mm are you talking about just being really exhausted? And it's not just, you're not sleeping well at night because you stayed up too late, but like, are you just permanently feeling exhausted? Like you're running on fumes or other health problems coming up. Do you find yourself thinking about a client? Like that client just stays in your mind. And I think sometimes that's okay. Right. Cause we get mm-hmm. ideas for clients, but are you ruminating on a certain client and their trauma narrative? Do you find yourself like crying a lot? So For me, if I was consulting with you, those are kind of some of the things I would notice of like, hey, I think there's something going on for you as a practitioner that I'm concerned about. Yeah, those are some good markers because I think in the mental health world, we know so much about all the different mental health diagnoses and different aspects of that. And so we can sometimes be hard on ourselves and think, oh man, I'm I'm depressed right now, or I'm anxious, or I really need to get my life together. Like, you know, but perhaps there's something else going on. Perhaps it's that fatigue And that burnout and vicarious trauma kicking in. So it's a good way to think about it. I'm curious more on how this can affect the body over time. You mentioned a little bit of that. Can you speak to if somebody sits in vicarious trauma and doesn't address it, what toll can that take physically on them? Mm. That's a good one, (laughs) Erin. Okay. So if we think about, and I don't know how many listeners are familiar with us storing trauma in our body. So when we have trauma that happens to us, it goes somewhere in our body. And it's the same when you're sitting there and you're listening to someone's trauma narrative, it's going somewhere into your body. And so first of all, the trauma is getting stored. So is it in your muscles? Is it an organ? That's going to happen. But maybe people aren't as aware of that. It's this idea too, of that when we run on this like fight, flight, or freeze, now fawn is the newest one that they're adding. There's just so much cortisol being dumped into our body, right? And like, that's very adaptive and that's great for a short period of time. We need that because that gets us out of danger, whatever it is, it's very adaptive. But then when that keeps going on for maybe weeks or years for some people, because this is their job, it gets to the point where your body becomes exhausted. Your adrenals aren't functioning properly. I'm not going to get into all the medical part because that's not my expertise, but I do know (laughs) that like the cortisol starts affecting you to where you're exhausted all the time. Like you truly can't function. And again, like people can start presenting health issues, not understanding like, why do I have a headache or why do I have backaches or something? And a lot of that plays into the idea of like, maybe that's where the trauma is being stored, or maybe that's where your tension's being stored. 
from listening to this. So it's actually really helpful to get into your body. We may suggest that with our clients, right? Like, oh, let's like sit there and like be mindful of doing a body scan and where we're feeling it. But as practitioners, we're not so great at doing that all the time, right? And noticing mm-hmm. what our body's doing, especially over a prolonged time. And you're like, this is normal. It's normal for me to have four cups of coffee to get through the day. You know, it's normal for me to feel tense and like, I can't slow down, but it's actually not normal. Yeah. And I know increased cortisol over time, like you said, leads to reduced cortisol And that's where sometimes autoimmunity kicks in or even not just like some of those headache symptoms or stomach ache symptoms, but over time, it can lead to some serious life altering diseases or chronic conditions that that people have to deal with. And so, yeah, it's, it's serious. It's something that needs to be addressed for sure. Before we get into how to address it and how to release all of that, let's also talk about how COVID or the pandemic has possibly affected this or played into this? Any thoughts there? Yeah. Good question. We've been dealing with that for like over two years now. So I started doing a little bit of research on this. And so if we think about it, it's like those essential workers or even now frontline workers with like Ukraine and things that are going on right now in our world, there's a lot happening. And so not only are people having direct trauma, right? Like as a whole society, we had the world shut down And then we also have this virus that's affecting people and killing people and people's lives are forever changed, their businesses. And so it's affecting people on a direct trauma level, right? But then especially the frontline workers. So we have so many different people that had to put themselves out there and are continuing to put themselves out there. And they're experiencing trauma from what they're seeing from the clients that are coming in and from the patients that they're working with or from the refugees that they're helping or, or whatever the, the instance is. So mm-hmm. trauma is the permanent change that's happening when you're hearing to the trauma details. But then we also have experiencing the actual trauma. So it's like a both and happening here. And so I think there's going to be a lot more information coming out. This is new for everybody, right? Like we're finding out a lot in general about the effects of COVID. But I think especially right now, because we're collectively feeling this stress, there's so repercussions right now of all this and how it's affecting us. And so the stress is very tangible that we can feel and, and noticeable on a like global level. Yeah. And I can speak to that as a working therapist through the height of the pandemic it it was so interesting because in grad school, we're trained to help people through their traumas, right? There's some distance and we're taught if the trauma is too close to your own traumas or your own experience, you refer out, um, so that you can stay fairly helpful and distant from it. But that's just impossible when what is coming into the therapy room is what's happening in the world. We're all going through it together. It was a lot harder to distance emotionally from what the trauma was that the clients were feeling, because I would go home and be like, I feel the exact same way. Like (laughs) it's just really a lot more weighty. And so I really resonate with what you're saying where it's, it's different right now with COVID, with the war in Ukraine, which is the economy and inflation and all these things that are causing stress on a very basic level and then having to help people through that, I feel like practitioners right now are probably at a heightened risk for vicarious trauma. Oh yeah. 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 But there's good news. Shall I go into the good news? Yeah. What do we do? What do we do about this? (laughs) So you mentioned in the introduction, like I'm pretty familiar with this because I did my dissertation on this. So we have risk factors 
that increased chances of experiencing vicarious trauma more, which I'll touch on those. And then there's protective factors. And then I'm going to talk about that a little bit and then kind of like ease into like the self-care that kind of ties into this protective factor. So you know where I'm going. So with risk factors of this, we have just workload. So in general, when we're working 30, 40 hours a week and the majority of the clients that you're seeing are people that have extreme trauma, that's going to be a risk factor. So then they found that the risk factors were even greater for those that had sexual violence. So when you're sitting with people and my dissertation specifically was unpacking a lot of things around human trafficking. And a lot of my experience professionally has been with women that have walked through trafficking. And so that's a subset, but sexual violence is one. And then a person's personal history of trauma. So those three things tend to be the top three things that are going to affect vicarious traumatization yourself and how you cope with it. But the good news guys is there's protective factors. And so the first one is your coping style. So there's like an active coping style. So noticing like, okay, I know I'm going to have a busy week this week. I'm working 30 or 40 hours a week and I work at a human trafficking support center or whatever. Then you're going to have to be a little more instrumental in how you're planning your time and how you're going to take care of yourself. So coping style is one. Social support was another one. Planning, like I just said, was one. Instrumental support. So that's looking at like supervision or consultation and the support within where you're working or within your helping profession. And then actually another one that I found very interesting was humor. So Mm. these are the top ones that actually are the protective factors that can offset those risks that we just talked about. And interestingly, one of the top ones was peer support. So being able to have a safe space and think about it like in consultation too. It's like having a safe space where you can process a client that you just had that you need some feedback on or just to have someone listen, just like, you know, we're, we're there supporting other people, feeling that support for yourself. So peer support was one of the most protective factors that we had. And COVID definitely made that more tricky, right? To see people and sit down and be able to talk about it. Yeah, we have Zoom or we're able to do this, but there's been some challenges, even if we're thinking about it right now, mm-hmm. of just what you're able to do. Love Zoom. Zoom like changed the face of itself when it came up during COVID. Something about sitting in the room with someone that is very different. I think of it like 2D versus 3D. You just feel you feel and you can comfort more and that, that extra presence factor is there in yeah. person. Yeah. So I wonder, I don't have any research on that right now, but I just wonder like the effect of that, of like having that support with each other, but then it was on zoom and it was on a screen versus actually being with people. So I kind of want to talk to people that are helping professionals, but kind of like zoom it out and just talk about it in general. So being really strategic, I actually have a friend that has quite a bit of trauma clients And so she is very strategic. She actually does more than 10 minutes. She, depending on the client that she has, she'll actually allow herself 15 to 20 minutes before. And so she's in private practice and she's able to create her own schedule, but she knows like, I need a little more time in between going. So like really utilizing that time. Cause sometimes it's like, I got to go to the bathroom and drink some water. Well, that's not really like processing what just happened when you're sitting with someone. Right. And just like honoring the moment. So I say giving yourself enough time in between clients. I actually think you told me this. So I remember you brought up how sometimes when you had trauma clients, you would go and you would go to the bathroom afterwards and shake because that's mm-hmm. what animals did when they are in nature, when they've encountered something scary, they go and shake. So I'm pretty sure you were the one that told me like, 
go to the yes. bathroom and shake. I learned that from my dogs. I have two large dogs and they, sh- they shake it off like Taylor okay. Swift says, but yeah, it's actually, it shakes off the cortisol, not, not off the cortisol, but it's a way to release the pent up fight, flight, freeze fawn response is just shake it out or like yes. dance it out or wiggle it out, exactly. stretch it out. You have to move a little bit. Yeah. Yes. But so, I did it in the bathroom. So my next client wouldn't think I was having a psychotic yeah, break or something. Yeah. So I think that's important. And I think creating time for consultations, because especially if you're in private practice, that gets so much harder. You have to be intentional to do that, right? Because you're right. back your schedule and it's kind of up to you. But being intentional to have that weekly, if you need it, or even more consistently, especially if you have higher risk clients or a lot of trauma clients, like you need that support. And it feels easy to be like, oh, like I've been doing this for a while, but like prioritizing, no, you need to talk it out with someone and you need to have the support and the other set of eyes, not just on that client, but on you as well to make sure you're giving them the best care and doing no harm. I think another thing is creating space to create rhythms for self-care because when we really need it is when we're going through something pretty stressful. That's when it's like the most beneficial, but we actually need to practice it. It's not a muscle that comes naturally, at least to most people. And I would venture to say most people aren't going to be like, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and do this. We find a lot of other things to do. I tend to do that with like working out too. I'm like, I know it's good for me, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, but the more we practice it, the more it becomes a rhythm to your life. And we know that when you have that, you're going to utilize it when you're in crisis. And when you're in this fight or flight mode, because you've had a very stressful week, you're going to know, like, I need to go and do whatever that is for you. So some people it's meditating or it's going for walks or find the rhythm that works for you. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com and use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. I love that the intentionality behind that and making it part of your routine, because I think what you just said is so true. If we're really in the throes of being burnt out, we just want to turn off our brain or sit still or, you know, do, which is not a bad thing, but it's not as restorative as if you already have a yoga class scheduled, or you already signed up to go hiking with a group or something. So I think the routine of that can be really helpful in the long run. Yes, I totally think so. I think the last thing I wanted to mention was just planning. And sometimes you can't be strategic and be like, okay, I'm going to stack my schedule with like, I have to have six clients today. And most of all of them have a trauma that we're processing or whatever. Like sometimes you can't do that, but looking ahead, at least in knowing, okay, today I have five clients. What am I going to do afterwards? Am I going to go sit with Erin, Dr. Elmore? And am I going <laughs> to consult with her about it? Or 
you know, it's being intentional and thinking about your clients. Cause it's really easy to just get caught up and all of a sudden be like, okay, well, I just, the next three days are really busy and they're full of a lot of really hard stories. So how am I going to care for myself? So at least just planning in that. And then again, like you'll utilize, hopefully what you've been practicing is your self-care. So actually another thing, and this is where I'm going to like broaden it. to like what others can do when we're faced with these issues of secondary stress. I think about what you just said and like shaking it off. And so we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the quarantine shutdown, having dance parties in our house. <laughs> like we would just dance and that became almost like a daily thing for us to dance it out. Similarly to like what you're saying of like shaking and, and moving after you have something I've also heard and been told actually by a therapist of mine that I see of like, if you're going to process something challenging, like walk or bike as you're mm-hmm. talking about it. And like, that is also releasing. So you have some good hormones being released as you're walking some endorphins to hopefully offset some of the stress that you're working through. That's good. Being in nature. So I'm now studying and I don't have enough research or anything to really go into, but I am studying the importance of different sounds and how those are healing for like our vagus nerve and our parasympathetic systems and sympathetic systems and all of that. And one of those is bird songs. So going, there's a certain tone that's actually very healing and think about when you're hiking and you hear waterfalls or you hear like a Creek. So water sounds are also very healing. If you ever download like those like apps about like sound meditations, I mean, they normally always include, there's some sort of bird somewhere. That's so true. Some sort of water. And so getting in nature. So whether that's like going hiking or if you don't have access to that, if you live in a desert, like being outside, like just being intentional to be in nature. Another thing I started doing when the world shut down was I started grounding, which sounds really cheesy, but I was just going to ask you about grounding. Yeah. Oh, what are your thoughts? Like, well, <laughs> I would just slip off my shoes and I go walk around my backyard. It was a tiny backyard in Houston. And I would just walk around barefoot because we know that there's a lot of research that goes into it about the ions that are escaping your body and the negative ions that are in the ground that are very healing for the ground. I know some people that have like the grounding mats and stuff, which I think are fabulous, but sometimes it's as easy as like walking around your backyard. I think that was really cheesy, but I tried it and you can actually tell, like, sometimes I just feel like, Oh, I've been around screens too long. I need to just like put my feet in the sand or put my feet in the and the grass or something. And you can actually, you can actually tell it feels more restorative. I tried one of those grounding mats during COVID because I was yeah. sitting at a computer doing therapy all day long. Right. So I'd have it under me. And I don't know if that helped as much. I feel like it got warm sometimes. So I knew it was doing something, but I'm not yeah. sure. I don't have as much experience or research into that one, but I think nature is a preferred option if you can yeah. have access to it. And the last one I was going to say is just sometimes getting sunshine in your face. So listeners mm-hmm. in the PNW, so sorry, because that's so much harder to get than where you live in sunny California, <laughs> but getting sunshine because we have all this artificial light from our screens and phones and even the lights that we have in our house. So getting that sunshine and having that can be really important too. But a practice I wanted to talk about to kind of end the self-care is have you, or do you know much about like self-compassion? Yes. I love this research. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time researching this during shutdown of the world and just really resonated with it. And I love it. And so one practice that I continue even now is 
this self-compassion, they just call it an exercise, but I'm going to walk you through what it is because I think it's really, it's really simple and profound. Number one. So it'd be best to do this maybe with like a hand over your heart or like you can even hug yourself, but there's power in touch. You can see this in children and how they want to be touched after they've gone through something really difficult. It actually does calm the vagus nerve. That's why it's helpful. Hugging yourself like that actually calms your body. Yeah. Right. And so we do it with each other or we can see it most explicitly, I feel like in small children and we've forgotten to do this for ourselves, you know, and especially a lot of people in the pandemic, they were all by themselves a lot. So that's how we start this. The first one is just honoring what you're feeling. And so I'm going to make up a situation. I feel really sad right now. I had a really hard day and I feel really sad. So it's honoring your process and what your experience is and labeling the emotion, sadness. And then it's connecting it to a bigger group of people knowing that we all experience this. So you're first honoring your own. And then you're saying like my sadness, other people feel this when this happens, because this Mm -hmm. is just a betrayal is really hurtful of a friend. And Mm -hmm. there are other people that are in my shoes. I am not alone in this. And so it's honoring that you're part of a collective. You're part of a bigger group of people. And the last one is like I send myself joy mm. because that's what I need right now. Or you could send yourself anything. Uh, that was the first word that came to mind. So the steps are that you honor your own feelings. It connects you to a bigger group of people, knowing that you're not alone in your experience. And then finally sending yourself whatever you need in that moment. And that might be different an hour down the road, but that's what you need. It can become really easy and quick. Like it can be a drawn out process if you need to be more intentional but it could be even driving in traffic mm-hmm. of like, I'm really frustrated right now. And we are all in this together in five o'clock traffic and I'm overwhelmed and I send myself patience mm-hmm. or gratitude or whatever. And so it is a practice that I have done a lot when I'm very intentional to do it. I just feel better. Yeah. It's a powerful one. Yeah, it really is. You know what I love is that your self-care examples are concrete, powerful, rooted in science and connect us to ourselves and other people, which is what is so healing. I have a pet peeve in our culture right now where you hear self-care thrown around so flippantly. And even unfortunately, some therapists are giving clients advice of self-care is like, well, put on a face mask and take a bath or hug your dog or watch TV. And all those things are wonderful it's not really addressing what self-care was designed to do, which is to connect us to other people, connect us to what we're feeling, create space, powerful healing methods. So I, yeah, I love these substantial examples. And I think this is the true definition of self-care. Yeah. I do feel like hugging your dog and putting a face mask on, is kind of like essential, but like self-care is <laughs> like the next step of like, now I need to be more intentional to connect to myself and to others. Like those other things are just things I should be doing. Like, it's- yeah, maybe I was being too harsh on it. That technically could be self-care, but it's like <laughs> it the could. very basic level. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. we need to start there. Like sometimes true, true. people don't do that. So I think there can, there can be room for that, but I do think having a bigger picture of self-care and knowing like you're worth it. Like you are worth it to go and spend some time in nature, walking around, hugging yourself. Like that is, that is good. <laughs> and that is okay. Yeah. I think in the Pacific Northwest, you'd fit right in doing that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> no, it's so true. It's so true. What are some other signs people might 
need to look out for to recognize that they need some self-care techniques or they need to slow down. I know, I know we talked about as a therapist or, you know, first responder, but what about lay people? What are some signs that they may be getting overwhelmed or overworked? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think you're right. I think you're remembering like, not just, I mean, it's not just at this point, the frequency that we have of seeing traumatic things on social media and news. And it's just so much more accessible than just sitting in a room processing it with someone else. Like it's just, unfortunately we have access to it. So, I mean, kind of to your point, I think I've heard a lot of people in the last couple of years, just issues with sleep. I think that's one thing. And yeah, like there could be other things going on. Again, I'm not a medical doctor and we don't have to get into those, but what are you ruminating on? Like, where do your thoughts go before you go to sleep? Like, is that impacting your ability to go to sleep? Anxiety of worrying about whatever, or even waking up in the middle of the night and worrying about it. I think that's a number one thing I tend to look for in myself and others when something else is going on, if we're having issues around sleep. Also think this idea of hopelessness, like it's almost like this pessimistic, which I mean, is kind of pervasive in our culture right now because things, not just our culture and our world, like things are pretty rough these days. And so there is this sense of apathy going on in the world right now that can lead to these feelings of hopelessness and pessimism, right? Would you think irritability fits in there as well? If people just find they're getting more irritable with their family members or kids? Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I feel like it's noticing, well, it's harder to do this again when we're in survival mode because we're getting through the day based on whatever is happening in our world at the time. So for a while, it was like people are homeschooling their kids and they're working and they're trying to run the household and, and stay healthy, right? Like there's so much going on. It was hard to turn inward and notice what was happening. And again, I feel like that's where just taking time for yourself, you get to get more acquainted with yourself and what's going mm-hmm. on and the importance of that. But I think those are some good hallmark points. Yeah. That that. I was also thinking of like, if we can become aware of what our go-to coping is when we start to feel stress and we notice we're doing a lot of that, that could also be a sign. Like some people end up watching a lot of TV or scrolling a lot on their phone because their mind is so tired and they need mental rest. Or some people eat a lot. Some people go to food because they need comfort or they need, they feel like they need satiation of some kind. And so that could be a clue of, oh, wow, I may be more stressed than I think, or I personally start doing a lot of things. I'm an achiever. So I I just make to-do lists and just stay busy. And if I get realize that I'm just doing things to do them, that's a sign for me of, okay, maybe I need to slow down. Maybe there's something going on. I need to process. So I think that could be a sign to, for practitioners and lay people is if you can notice what is your preferred coping and, Mm -hmm. and when you're doing it, pay attention. Yeah. Just be curious about it. Like what, why am I doing that right now? Right? Like it's a curiosity about our behaviors that often open it up. It's good. Do you happen to have a story that fits in with this topic, whether it's the dangers of vicarious trauma or somebody who succeeded with self-care? I have two. I have something that went wrong and went right, but I'll start with a positive one. Let's just start with when it was done right. I was doing a practicum setting downtown LA, working with those experiencing homelessness. And I was working at a medical center. So primarily people that were there for dentistry and medical, but I also provided mental health. So this is right as I'm writing my dissertation. So probably the idea of vicarious trauma is on the top of my mind and the idea of self-care. 
I was a little more mindful of. It also was a couple years after the bad incident that I will reference in a moment. So I think I had all these spinning around my mind that made me more aware and more intentional of my time. So the population I worked with, I often was going through really hard trauma details. The majority of my clients were, but I had phenomenal supervision. I had great consultation, uh, group supervision and consultation. And I had a ritual that I would often do at the end of my time with my clients. So based on, I had different ones based on what different people needed or wanted, but since it was a Christian facility, all the doctors and dentists at the facility all prayed with their clients. And so I often would have clients ask to end our session in prayer. And so that almost was like, for me, it was handing over the trauma details and the narrative that they had given me and handing it over. So it felt like almost like a, well, it was a spiritual act, but it felt like a physical act. Like this is how I'm ending the session. And so if clients didn't want to pray or whatever, it was similar of like, it was wrapping it up in some routine for me. And I, I do identify as a Christian. And so even if they left the room, I would pray, or even it was almost like I would often sit and like open-handedly, you can't see that. I was like doing my hands open. (laughs) Like listeners can see that open-handedly just giving them back to creator. And so I think for me being intentional to have practices in place made it to where I, I didn't leave there. And it was probably one of my only experiences in practicums where I didn't leave completely overwhelmed and, and going towards a vicarious trauma state because I had these things in place. So that was amazing. And then the experience that let me know was not good. I did not know about vicarious traumatization. This was at a practicum during my master's when I was in Atlanta and I was working at a home for women that had experienced human trafficking and an array of other traumatic things. And I did not have great supervision. I had a group supervision one time a week at my school, but when you're with 10 other people, that was just not enough for me. And so I was dreaming like I just said, like I was dreaming of what my clients' details of their trauma were. I was hyper aroused. I was exhausted and irritable. I started presenting health issues and was going to doctors to try to figure out what was going on with me. And now I can look back at it. It wasn't actually until I got to our doctorate program and I was talking with one of our professors and I'm like, I experienced vicarious trauma and I didn't have support in place. I didn't have self-care in place. I didn't have some of these hallmark things that I now know, like protective factors and intentionality and rhythms of self-care to protect myself. And so I really struggled. And it's actually amazing that I even went back to, to school and was like, I will choose to do this, but I'm a helper, whether I like it or not. It's just going to say, you're, it's one of my favorite things about you. Your heart is so big. You just can't not. So I'm, I'm glad that you did come back and learn all of this. Yeah. So I've, I've seen the good and the bad and the need for good self-care, good support, good supervision and consultation for those, you know, I think consultation is helpful at any point in your career, but absolutely, especially as we're starting out too, you know, like there's just a lot when you get out on your own, where you continue to need the support and you don't have the supervisor in place anymore. So yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Those are those are my two experiences that those are really good visuals, I think, of of mm-hmm. how it could go well and how it could not go well. So yeah. thank you for sharing those. Well, as we wind down today, we love to give our listeners resources. So Christina, do you have any resources for vicarious trauma if people are interested in learning more and or anything that you're currently working on if people want to find you? Yeah. So there is a Vicarious Trauma Institute. I'm also going to send over um, some other resources. So maybe you can put it in the show notes. And we will. That. Yeah, we definitely will. Cool. Um, so people can have, because there's a, there's quite a bit of information coming out now and how that works for frontline workers, those working with refugees and practitioner settings too. So I'll, I'll send you some of those so you can have it. As for my future endeavors and certifications I'm working on, I'm actually working on doing some postpartum doula certifications right now. So I hope to finish that up this summer. And then I'm also working on some stuff for those that are walking through fertility journeys. And so if people want to find out a little bit more about that, I'm still working on my website, which is like not where my brain works the best. So still working on that, but I'm on social media. So I'm on Facebook. So I think it's just like facebook.com slash Christina. Mally, M-A-L-L-Y, or I'm on Instagram too. So it's Dr. Christina Mally when you type me into Instagram. So stay tuned for more information on that because I'm excited about it. It's where my heart's leading me. And so I want to honor the process. That sounds great. And I know you're just going to be such a good fit for that. So we may have to have you back on a podcast for part two to talk about that. Yes. Oh my gosh. I would be so honored. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been so fun having you here today. And I just really appreciate you sharing all of those insights. I think they're timely and very helpful on many levels for our listeners. So thank you so much. Glad. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was so good to chat with you. I want to remind our listeners that this episode, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. Visit triadhq.com slash BHT, and you can explore our archive. And finally, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining in on the conversation. We really appreciate you being here with us and look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.